0: Well, everybody, and welcome to this episode 64 of the Burden and Command podcast. Today's guest is brought to you again by our good friends over at C.S. Lewis and Company Publicist. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about uh, today's guest and building him up because uh, his intro, which will play after the stinger there, uh, is very impressive. Now, I tried to cut this back. I promise you I did. Uh, but as I mentioned in the show, it's just David is just such an accomplished person. I had to mention pretty much everything. I mean, it's all impressive to me um, as someone who likes anthropology uh, as an amateur, obviously, and likes studying the cognitive behaviors of humans. This was a great interview for me. Uh, I hope you find it as entertaining as I did while I was having the conversation, and I think you're going to take a lot of great information away from what Dr. White has to share with us. So with that, I'm just going to shut up, and I'm going to let you get into episode 64 with Dr. David White. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. Today's guest is Dr. David G. White, Jr., David is partner and co-founder of Ontos Global. He has spent the last 25 years helping organizations manage and sustain transformation. As a cognitive anthropologist, his research and practice focuses on the new approaches to organizational culture and change based on the emerging science of the cultural mind, as described in his book *Rethinking Culture: Embodied Cognition and the Origin of Culture in Organizations*. We're also going to talk about another book that uh, David has written titled Disrupting Corporate Culture, How Cognitive Science Alters Accepted Beliefs About Culture and Culture Change and Its Impact on Leaders and Change Agents. As an OD practitioner working with global companies and startups, he focuses on designing and implementing successful large-scale organizational transformation programs as well as developing adaptive leaders who can do the same. David consults with companies as diverse as ITT, Fidelity Investments, Pratt & Whitney, and Kaiser Permanente. From 2003 until 2010, he was Director of Talent and Organizational Capability at Microsoft, where he led the development of Microsoft's integrated platform for people management and leadership development. This competency, career path, and key experiences platform was deployed to 100,000 people worldwide. Prior to that, David was principal at Mercer HR Consulting, co-founded an internet technology company focused on integrated talent management, created an HR function for early internet advertising startups, and spent several years at Lotus Development. He began his corporate career as an executive recruiter in investment banking in New York, having come from prior career in aviation as a flight instructor and charter pilot. And as if all that wasn't enough, David is a professional jazz guitarist and composer with seven CDs to his credit. You know, David, uh, that's an impressive resume, and I just want to say thank you very (laughs) much for carving out some time to be with me today. No, thanks. You read the whole thing, man. I was like, well, when's this, when's this going to be over? No, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs> you, you know, I tried, I usually try to condense them a little bit, but as I was reading this, I'm like, you know, it's such an eclectic and excellent resume. I'm like, there's not much of anything I can cut out here. This is all impressive stuff. Oh, no, you're very kind. Not, not really. Just uh, not much, no, no children and not much sleep over the years. That's really what it what it's about. There you go, there you go. Well, sir, I'm going to start you off where I start off all the rest of my guests. Uh, When you hear the term "burden of command," what does that mean to you?
1: Yeah, well, for me, I'm sure your other guests would have said something very similar. For me, it means the the responsibility and the privilege of leading. Which which actually for me, it's less about burden as much as as it is. As it is about responsibility and privilege, burden feels heavy, and but responsibility and privilege means um, obligation, higher calling, that
0: kind of thing. Now, you through your career, uh, you've been in in a few different types of leadership roles. I mean, from being a charter pilot and a flight instructor uh, to to leading uh, the the team development at Microsoft. I mean, those are. There's two vastly different experiences. Would you say that that uh, that responsibility was it was it generally the same or was it different in those roles?
1: Yeah, well, certainly when you're you know one of my one of my early you know probably my my first yeah it's going to other than sort of working in a restaurant or in a liquor store you know my first real job was as a flight instructor uh, teaching people how to fly uh, in, in small Cessnas. Uh, in the desert uh the desert southwest and and yeah my my i didn't think of it as leadership at the time but in retrospect those early experiences were 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 very much forging of my ideas about leadership um i had some very i had some excellent mentors and instructors that i learned to fly with and and uh, particularly those that taught me how to be an instructor uh pilot you know for my instructor um Certifications and from those experiences, I learned a lot about you know what it's like to um, be responsible in a in, in, an, in a in a in a in a in a you know in an aircraft in an airplane, uh, especially when you're teaching someone how to fly and how to impart that same sense of responsibility to them. Um, I mean, some of it's obvious because there's a there's a life and death element to it, but it's it's more than just that. It's really a, it's really getting them to appreciate the and be, and appreciate the power and also the humility of, of the responsibility that they have to, you know, to fly an airplane. Uh, right. So I, I think, I think I learned a lot about, about uh, again, in retrospect at the time, I, at the time I didn't think of it that way, but in retrospect, a lot of the lessons on leadership that I draw today, I draw from some of that experience.
0: You know, it's interesting to hear you say that, because that's kind of where I start my journey is kind of in a similar similar situation my my first experience being put in a leadership role uh i was about 16 years old and i was working in a uh, it, it was a it was a packing shed for tomatoes so the mm. the migrant workers for people who aren't familiar the migrant workers would come in they would pick the fields load one of tr- uh, the truck the tomatoes would come into this plant they would get cleaned washed sorted boxed and shipped out um I was put in charge of uh, what they called the box loft. It was where all the the boxes the tomatoes would put in to get shipped out uh, were made, and I, I ended up getting put in charge of uh, of the loft. And that meant at 16, I had uh, three gentlemen, quote unquote, working for me, who were in their early to mid 30s. Well, you know, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure how many people have been in that position, but not many uh, men. In their early to mid 30s, relish the idea of, of taking orders from a 16 year old. Right. And uh, so I had to learn real quick some of those those subtle interpersonal skills uh, to to get them to want to to listen to me and in, in, uh, my direction.
1: Right. That's and,
0: right. And it was very interesting uh, learning curve there because I'll admit I failed hardcore mm-hmm. in the first few days you know i tried i had this vision of the command and control type of leadership and 30 year olds don't jump too high when a when a 16 year old tells them to right right that's right that's right <laughs> that's
1: right no i have this story similar for me because i was in my 20s and a lot of my students were often quite a bit older and uh, and had had been successful or had successful careers and here was this little 20 something telling them how to trying to teach them how to fly an airplane you know and and uh I learned how to try to communicate with, with um, people of all walks of life and try to get them to, um, you know, learn an experience and, and learn how to, you know, how to fly and how to, how to think about um, flying in a particular way, in a way that was, that reached them, right? And I learned actually that you can't really approach everybody in the same way um, and that, in, you know, everybody in that cockpit with you is an individual and you got to really think about, how to reach them in, in the most effective way.
0: Yep, absolutely. Well, speaking of, of reaching people, uh, I, I, I like your book, Disrupting Corporate Culture. Uh, I like how it starts in chapter one with debunking, uh, you identifying five myths of cultures. If you don't mind, uh, let, let's, let's jump into those a little bit here. Does that sound good? Sure thing. All right. So, your first myth. Culture starts at the top. Why is that a myth?
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, this is probably one
1: of the most widespread um, ideas about culture that there um, that there is, and I start there because because it is so widespread um, so and as I say in the book, leadership and culture are related. there's absolutely no question about that um, and there's lots of good reasons why. Leader culture and leadership are thought of, you know, in in, in the same sentence. Like the leader creates the culture. Um, some of that has to do with early thinking in psychology in the early part of the 20th century, and some of that some of that work has sort of stayed uh, or trickled down into the business world. Unfortunately, um, when you look at the literature and study the the relationship between the brain and culture, and you look at culture through the cognitive anthropo- anthropological lens. And remember that culture is been the sole focus of anthropologists for a hundred years. It's the only discipline on the planet that actually makes culture. It's, it's object of study every other discipline that claims to have something to do with culture, teach culture more as a, as a, a secondary topic, mm-hmm. um, like psychologists study, you know, the individual and they only care about culture when it relates to um, you know, when it relates to the individual in a system or economists are interested in culture only to the extent that it might explain something about um, human behavior. But anthropologists treat culture as the object of study and there's virtually no literature in, there's no support for the idea that leaders set culture or somehow create cultures, um, you know, somehow magically out of their own brains um, or just sort of trickles down by what they say or what they do. Um, there's there's no support for that. Cultures turn out it turns out over you know cultures have been are a function of human evolution, and human societies for you know millennia, and it turns out cultures form just as well without leaders. Many groups um, will tend to form a culture or cultures with or without a a clear leader. Um, so it's a it's a it's a it's a pretty interesting myth when you kind of get into it. And in, in the book, I go into a lot of reasons as to why the myth exists. Um, one of the one of the several reasons is that it's convenient to think about culture and leadership because it's easier to engage an individual person in working with and changing a system, an organizational system, rather than thinking about it the other way, which is you know culture is actually uh, a complex, messy, adaptive um, phenomena, and you know where do you especially in a business context where do you where do you intervene or what you know what do you do with that information right it's easier to talk to an individual person and say hey you know you you know or you got to work on the on your culture here versus um your culture is a, a broader phenomenon you know more like the ocean so how do you how do you begin to tackle the ocean if that makes sense
0: no it, it absolutely does and i like the way you break uh, you break that first myth down into uh like kind of problems with the myth and and one that I, I like that I, I want to touch on before we you know maybe move on to another myth is you know a lot of times culture is defined as kind of like the uh, the average of personalities or the the average of acceptable behaviors and you say culture is not the sum of personalities the leaders or anyone else's so where where does that where does that differ between being the sum of personalities versus, you know, what a lot of people see it is as, as, as a sum of like, say, acceptable behaviors, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's certainly, it certainly, mani- it can manifest as behavior. There's no question. There's, and again,
1: as I start out by saying, there is a, there is a relationship. It's just, it's just not linear and not predictable. And it's, it's not a, you know, you can't, al- you can't create an algorithm for it necessarily. Um, so the culture as personality idea does come from, you know, it originates with Freud. Uh, in the early part of the 20th century in the so-called uh, culture and personality school of psychology, which is a whole school of psychology that said cultures come from, you know, the individual imagination and the individual um, uh, consciousness. And to some extent that is true at a very high level. It's it's true. But as you start to peel back the onion and, and look into the mechanics of that, the way that happens um, is actually much, much more complex and much more indirect um, cognitive psychology. Cognitive, uh, cognitive science, really, not just in anthropology, but cognitive linguistics, sociology, psychology, even cultural neuroscience, all of these fields, new fields in the last 20, 30 years that study the relationship between the brain and the brain in social systems, including cultures, um, begin to see that the relationship is much, much more complex. For example, the the prevailing cognitive science view or in cognitive anthropology view is that culture actually originates from what people do you know what you do all day literally physically with your hands you know what what you do all day shapes how you think um, and what you find meaningful based on what you do shapes how you think and shapes what becomes culture so if you think about culture much more as a product of what we call the task environment or the you know the things that groups the ways that groups adapt to their environments through the work that they do and the objects they create and the the meaning that they attach those to those objects, uh, et cetera. You know, that whole process, that whole dynamic over time creates creates culture or cultures. And those cultures are essentially adaptations to the environment. And if you think about it in those terms, you know, you see how this is how over thousands of years, humans have survived and adapted to their environments because they've been able to, Um, create cultures based on the things that they do and the things that they find meaningful to allow them to survive. I know know I've zoomed way out here, but you know, it's sometimes in business, you get um, people writing books about corporate culture as if they invented the construct. Whereas the (laughs) the idea of culture has been around for as long as humans have been around and societies have had cultures back, you know, to the stone age, um, and so it's, it's not a new construct and it. It, 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 it's, it, it's very much related to, to cast, to what people do, um, and, and how they think about what they do.
0: Okay. No, I like that. And, and yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm sure my listeners enjoy that kind of deep dive. Uh, I, I know I do. This is, uh, you know, as we said, kind of in the workup, uh, seeing your background and all this, I, I really, I really love this, uh, the the science behind culture and the, especially the anthropology angle. Uh, I I really like that. Um, So yeah, no, feel free to, feel free to to dazzle Mm -hmm. us with your brilliance there. I don't know about that, but
1: (laughs) it's just (laughs) obsessive, obsessiveness maybe more than anything.
0: (laughs) Well, there you go. Um, Well, that leads us to myth number two, and that is culture is a physical thing. What's that about? Yeah um, this is a, actually a function of the human
1: the human brain is and again another another feature of cognition it's not just related to culture humans think in terms of analogies we make sense of abstract things in terms of physical things and this is not this is a this is the, this is one of the uniquely thing, unique things that makes humans human so think about any abstract thing like the economy you know the concept of the economy, or the concept of uh, of, of M you know, mergers and acquisitions. You know, we always we tend to think of mergers and acquisitions in terms of marriage or mating or fighting or war, right? We 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 conceive of of these big abstractions um, in terms of physical activities or physical terms. Culture is no different. We tend to think of something amorphous and. Uh, intangible, like culture, as as a thing. Like you know, we always hear expressions like "put it in the culture" or "let's drive the culture" or "let's shape the culture." Right? These are figures of speech. These are metaphors. um When you when you stop and ask the question, well, where exactly is that culture, Earl? Can can you touch it? <laughs> can you smell it? Can you you know where is, can you find it? Is it in the closet? You know, is, is it is it in the bookshelf? Where where is the culture? Right? And so you know when you start to sort of ask silly questions like that, you see that it's really just a way of thinking about something very abstract and, and uh, that you can't really touch. And, and this is the, and the point in, the point in even saying that, that is when, is when we take that for granted, that idea that, you know, culture is a thing and therefore we can manipulate it. It's like inventory or real estate or a machine. Then we, then that leads us down a slippery slope of, of problems, because then we start to think that we can sort of push culture around, like we're pushing around a box or, you know, in, you know uh, manipulating, uh, you know, selling an asset or buying an asset, and and that leads to a whole host of problems for culture change agents and business leaders because they they think of culture as kind of a dependent variable, and culture is hardly a dependent variable. And this is again, taking that logic to its conclusion. This is why a lot of culture um, change efforts really fail or don't deliver on their on the ROI because. You're thinking of culture in a very reductive, um, you know, dependent way. And culture is hardly, you know, if you, the simplest metaphor I can think of, I can give you is if you thought of culture more like the water that the fish swims in or the air that you breathe, you would then think differently about how to actually go about changing that water or changing that air.
0: Mm. Well, no. And and I like that analogy there. I mean, you, you said it. Humans love analogies. I, I love that analogy. And, and it, it, ties in nicely uh with myth number three one company one culture and i think what i like about that analogy leading into that is i think we all understand that there's not just one body of water there's not just one mass of air right so why do we believe that one company one culture
1: right well as a former meteorologist role you could definitely relate to this right because you know Air masses and air systems are hardly uh, stable and single singular masses, right? So right. it's the same with culture. Um, the The modern, again, the modern cognitive science conception, really, in the last 20, 30 years, is if if uh, give you a different metaphor. If you thought of culture more as like DNA or source code in a computer, you might think of culture then as not so much culture as a monolithic thing, but as comprised of the smaller units or bits. Um, the, the most fundamental unit of culture is actually what we call, what cognitive anthropologists call a, a schema, um, a cultural schema. It's a, it's a mental model or mental representation of the world. The word I use in the book, which is a little more palatable to business people, is a, a logic. I call it a dominant logic. It's a, a shared unit of um, pre-conscious logic, sort of an, an image or an idea about the world about how things go, about how things should be. is basically represented as in, when you put it into words, it'd be what we call an assumption about how things go. And those assumptions or those logics, um, which are again, pre-verbal, you don't, you know, they, 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 you know it, but you don't know you know it, are the foundations or the DNA of culture. And you only start to see or make these assumptions or these logics visible when they're called to your attention. Um, or when, when something happens that makes you realize that the assumption or the logic that you had about a, a situation is totally wrong. Um, and the best example I have, you know, you've traveled and anybody who's traveled and landed in a, in a foreign airport, you know, let's say in, in the middle of Africa and gone to try to hail a taxi you know, coming out of the airport after like a 12 hour flight and you try to get a, cab, get a cab and you realize you can't read the signs, you can't speak the language, you know, there are people, there's a thousand taxis outside of the airport, but everybody's arguing with everybody else about what, how to get into a cab. You, you have no idea how to, how to proceed or how to operate or how to function in that scenario. That's culture. And, and that's your, you, the logics that you've used about how to get a cab, you know, that might work in Cincinnati no longer work in, in Accra, right? And that's the, that's, that's you're coming up against a different, what we call a different cultural reference system. And, and that's when you become aware that, you know, the assumptions that you had about hailing a taxi at an airport are totally don't work here. That's yeah. how culture works, right? And in organizations and you've got many of these sort of tacit logics or dominant logics, as I call them, that are operational or that are operating and they're all dependent on, you know, that some of them come from the professional orientation of the, of the groups in the organization, like software engineers or doctors, you know, the dominant groups tend to bring their logics with them to the, to the culture as it were, or uh, sometimes they come, often they come from the uh, challenges that a company has overcome. So if a company has solved a really, really hard problem, the, what it's taken to solve that problem gets coded in the brain, if you will, as a set of heuristics or a set of rules or a set of assumptions about what it takes to succeed. And then those assumptions become dominant and widespread in the broader culture and the broader system. That's how cultures form, essentially. And so I, I don't know if, I, if you're with me on this, but it's, it's, uh, it, it, the thing about the cognitive science of culture that's really interesting is that it's very, very intuitive. Most people actually understand, um, they don't necessarily know the mechanics of it, but they understand the, the, that cultures feel really distinct And they relate a lot to sort of what the organization does or who are the most dominant groups in the organization. You know, we always talk about sales cultures or engineering cultures or military cultures, right? And it's because the tasks of the organization or the dominant groups in the organization are those groups. And so, as I say in the book, our intuitions about culture are way ahead of the practice of culture. Um, but our, uh, but the cognitive science is showing that our intuitions are actually generally correct. They may be stereotypical, I mean, they may be sort of high level, but they're, they're directionally correct.
0: Mm. No. Right. Yeah. That makes, I mean, it makes perfect sense to me and, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, for the listeners, uh, you know, I'm hoping that, that they're tracking, but, you know, I mean, essentially, um. Uh, if I'm understanding right, you know, the, the idea of having one uniform corporate culture from top to bottom is not going to happen. HR is going to have their own culture. Uh, the, the information technology section is going to have their own, own culture. The salespeople is going to have their own culture. And, and you really right. kind of have to be okay with that in your organization, right?
1: That's correct. And, and cultures. Culture. The idea has been appropriated by uh, marketers and executives, <laughs> for good reason, to try to sort of bring a sense of unity to the organization, which is a very well-intended effort. But the reality of lived culture, and I make the distinction in the book between lived culture, what you and I feel, right. or what, what you know, the, the assumptions that we make about the world and the, and the, the the reference system that we use to organize meaning or to organize ourselves in in that world uh, are really different than you know the the um, the manifesto that you know Netflix publishes to say this is what we believe in you know a lot of companies have their their cultures and values you know this is what we believe in these are our values those are all well intended worthy efforts but that's a very different thing than the lived experience of people uh, and it's by the way it's not just the departments it's also the sites right a lot of bigger companies who have multiple sites and more global companies um you know, it's very, very difficult to impart the sense of a unified culture in any kind of global company. It's right. just the the sites are going to be are going to be different.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And and, and that last bit, uh, well, right towards the end there, uh, kind of ties into myth number four. Culture is what we say we care about. Uh, right. Yeah. It, uh, I like that because, uh, you know, that, that myth is is fairly pervasive. Right. Okay. It's. That's like I said before. That's kind of the popular definition for culture: is what we say we care about.
1: Yeah, it usually comes in the form of values. These are our values, or these are the norms we want. Mm-hmm. And I say, I say to you, all well and good. Um, it's I certainly wouldn't um, steer a CEO away from publishing, you know, their desired values. But again, back to the cognitive anthropology research. There's virtually it's virtually impossible to get someone to change their values. I hate to, I hate to break it to you, but it's really <laughs> difficult to get people, get groups to change their values. Now, um, you can, you know, unless those groups already hold those values, um, and therefore, you know, it's easier to have sort of software engineers and software engineering values show up in a software company and have the CEO's values aligned to that when the CEO himself is a former software engineer that all sounds all feels very congruent well it's congruent because the occupational um logics the occupational schemas the assumptions about software engineering and what it takes to make you know to build software um successfully um those values are already you know resident there because of the of the of the, of the dna of those activities generates those values in, in essence so it becomes very easy to to have that alignment but um and it's very difficult to get a group to change their values. It's very difficult to get a group to um, behave according to a set of norms unless those norms are already somehow resident in that group to begin with. And a lot of the, a lot of the literature supports, supports that idea. So this whole idea of cultures as values, again, is a, is a myth. It's, it does come from, uh, it's an easy way to think about culture, but it's kind of a reductive move uh, in order to um, simplify a pretty complex topic.
0: Well, right, and one of the things I love that that you kind of hit on on this one, and uh, as you, you break it down to the problems, your problem number five is values cannot be instilled by telling people what to value. Uh, Would you like to be told what to value? Right, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and yeah. it's it's but but organizations do that all the time, like you said, with the you know the the value statement and you know whatever you want to call it, but. Is it, I mean, and and this is my take on it, so correct me if I'm wrong here, but, you know, it's a lot easier to bring people on board that already believe that way right. than to bring somebody on board and try to make them believe that way.
1: That's exactly right. And, and that's why I say it's well intended. Look, I have no problem with Netflix or Google or Microsoft publishing their values. And if I want to go work there, you know, I can self-select into that system. And in fact, you know, values – statements are very much recruiting tools mm-hmm. and and for hr and and, that, and that's great that's fine i mean we'll leave out the fact that in many cases the lived reality and the published values are often quite different and that sometimes can backfire and cause a lot of cynicism and skepticism in the, in the workforce you know but leaving that problem aside for a second it, it is helpful to to sort of know okay the company cares about collaboration great you know well you know Of course, in in a recruiting selection scenario, if you want to work there, you're probably going to say you're collaborative, even if uh, even if you don't like to play nice with others. Um, But it it at least helps it directionally helps kind of you locate what the company is about. But that's very different than, again, the Libs culture. Um, You know, we have many we we often see this. We we will do work with companies who um, publish Value statements or norm statements about what they care about and what they what they want in their workforce, and we sometimes see that the actual logics of the of the workforce, you know, the DN, the cultural DNA of the workforce is actually exactly opposite mm-hmm. to the stated values. You know, like with one of our clients, value a lot of our a lot of our a lot of companies value collaboration. One of our clients express, expressly expressly talks about teamwork and collaboration. Well, it turns out. What what's really going on in the workforce is a is a really high competence um, logic, meaning uh, what they call mastery of craft. In other words, they, what, what really is valued in the organization is people who are really good at their jobs. And mm-hmm. if you're not good at your job, nobody's going to collaborate with you. So what we find is that the state of value of collaboration is kind of a compensation for or a wishful thinking to help people become more collaborative because the real reality is you only collaborate with the people who are really good at what they do. The the rest of, of the folks you kind of try to avoid. And that's sort of a, the norm in the organization. Right. And, and, the,
0: and the downside there is how do those people become better if others aren't collaborating with them and help them come along? Exactly. Exactly.
1: So so the value some statements sometimes are um, compens- what I call compensations for, um, for what's really going on. And not to say, again, well intended, but not a don't ever confuse the corporate stated values with the culture of the company
0: well and again nice uh, kind of nice dovetail comment there because uh myth five culture is employee well-being talk about that one for a minute
1: yeah if you go into amazon you know you type in corporate culture you probably get what you know, close to a million hits these days, certainly in the well under 100,000 hits books. Um, many of them will talk about cultures, how people feel, how we feel, you know. Um, we want to have a respectful culture. We want to have a, a culture of, of fun, you know. Um, again, all, you know, these are well-intended. Um, but again, the, the, the science shows that culture really isn't about feelings it isn't really about how people feel Uh, culture and again in the modern science conception is knowledge the most simple way of saying it is background knowledge like the like the uh, taxi cab example i gave you you know in africa um it's it's a it's what we call a reference system how to how how to navigate a particular social system and what's valued in that system um so uh how people feel can often be a reaction to what's going on in that social system, culturally speaking. Um, And when we confuse feelings for the culture, we start chasing the wrong variable. So that means, you know, for example, a lot of companies do employee engagement surveys. Again, great exercise. Definitely want to know how how the workforce is feeling and their attitudes towards the company and the future, etc., But that's not culture. That that can actually be as much a reaction to culture as as you know the value scape as we talked about a second ago. And so when you confuse the feelings of the workforce or the attitude or disposition of the of the workers, and you think that's culture, what happens is you start chasing the wrong variable. And that means then you probably throw a lot of money and a lot of resources, a lot of time into trying to fix you know the the attitude of the quote unquote of the of the workforce without really addressing the more fundamental. Stuff that's going on in the workforce or in, in the in the organization, culturally speaking, that is a lot more related to um, to these cultural logics and assumptions that I'm talking about. Hmm. Okay. And again, lots of money, lots of time, lots of energy, lots of resources are wasted on uh, on culture change programs that are doing very little, and that's that's a big pro- that's a big problem.
0: Well, yeah, and and uh, you know, you mentioned the word problem there. Your, your problem number two. How we behave does not reflect how we feel or think. So, what is what's the disconnect there? Uh,
1: that's yeah. We could spend a whole hour and <laughs> a whole day on that topic alone. Um, this sure. is a, this is a, a pretty common um, feature of uh, a pretty common finding in in cognitive science in general. Um, it relates to the broader field of cognitive biases, of which of which we have as humans many. Um, and this particular one has to do with cognitive distortions that have to do with memories of past events or future events and when they, regard, when they, when they um, have to do with feelings are usually distorted. We, we tend to have greatly distorted feelings, uh, memories about how we felt in the past or how we might feel in the future. And that's one reason why we might feel this a particular way about something or have an attitude towards something and behave in a completely different way. Uh, because the behavior that we might enact in a given moment is going to be very contextual and very situational and may or may not actually uh, uh, be a, ref- a function of the attitudes or the feelings that we might have I mean sometimes yes but in many cases no and so to rely on feelings or attitudes as a as a reliable indicator of how someone will behave is is subject to a lot of cognitive distortions and, and biases and again, you know, many, many cognitive science fields show that again and again.
0: And again, listeners, we're, we're talking about, uh, uh about David's book disrupting corporate, uh, culture. And, you know, realistically we've only just skimmed chapter one so far. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and that's the type of information and, and the depth of knowledge you find in this book. Um, and, and it's good stuff I mean again for me somebody who uh you know i i eat this stuff up because of what i do uh it's it's very good insight into understanding human behavior and and w- corporate culture and well any type of culture really at, at a deeper level instead of just that kind of the surface uh motivational poster type of level that it it gets uh that is about as far as most most people dig right
1: that's right now, I like that, how you said that a motivational poster because that is exactly where a lot of the culture stops. you know you walk into the into the plant or the office and you see the you know the post the inspiring posters on the wall right. um,
0: yeah, so chapter two, and I'm glad you decided you wanted to kind of tackle answering this question because it is a great question what's wrong with corporate culture. <laughs>
1: Well, the myths come. Myths are there for a reason, right? The the five myths we just talked about, Mm -hmm. Um, and um, the reasons you know they're 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 complex, but you know, simply put, the you know a whole industry since the late nineteen seventies, an entire industry has been built up around around organizational corporate culture. Uh, It's a billion dollar industry. Um, Let's let's be clear. I mean, when you when you add in the amount of money that companies spend on culture management, um, and you multiply that out by average. Numbers of employees in the Fortune 1000, you're, you're into the billions. Um, companies spend on average about $2,000 per employee on culture, culture-related culture mm-hmm. activities. That's a, that's a lot of money. Right. Um, so, you know, this industry has been in the business of, um, and this includes academics and consultants, people like myself, you know, HR uh, folks, executives, you know, the buyers, the consumers of the consulting and the, and the academic research. Um, a lot of this work has been well has been well intended, but basically what's happened is the industry has reduced the a very complex cop topic and concept like culture down to bite size um, so that it can be easily consumed and digested by basically uh, consumers executives hungry for solutions uh, in the late seventies uh, it you know there was a sea change in MBA programs and in thinking about Um, organizational behavior and motivation and, you know, to put it in in very simple terms, the, there was the the major shift that happened was thinking that basically people in organizations were unmotivated and needed to be commanded and controlled and told what to do and closely supervised and monitored, or else they would, you know, they wouldn't perform their jobs to, you know, that was, that was sort of the prevailing uh, thinking from, you know, Taylor, on onwards through World War II and into the 1950s and 60s, that basically people were inherently uh, unmotivated and in, inherently, um, you know, not suited to work and needed to be commanded and controlled to perform tasks, to thinking that basically, you know, this is sort of in line with the human potential movement, that, that humans essentially needed to be, um, in organizations, needed to be um, allowed the freedom to think and operate and and do as they, as they, as they please within, 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 within boundaries, of course, but that telling people and controlling people was actually not the way to productivity and to enhanced work performance and job performance and, and essentially, you know, the enlightened organization. And so um, this was the, uh, this was the movement in the late 1970s towards sort of, Emancipating the, the workforce and allowing workers to be uh, and you know white collar and blue collar to to be more um, more effective and more productive um, so I'm generalizing, but uh, with that corresponding move came a big interest in corporate culture because culture was thought of as the the enabler If basically we just get the culture right, people will do the right thing was 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 the logic um, And that led to ways to want to sort of simplify this very complex topic of culture in ways that managers could could leverage and utilize. And that's how we've got to that's where we are today, where we have a very complex, probably the most, I I argue, the most complex domain of organizational life, organizational culture, reduced down to things like values or attitudes or opinions or leader behavior. Um, and in, so, and when you do that, when you, when you take a really complex idea and reduce it down to sort of the bite size, you are essentially stripping out all of the power of that resource and, and, in grossly oversimplifying it, um, miss, uh, mishandling it and, and, and essentially losing its value. Right.
0: No, I, 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 agree. You know, having, uh, you know, having some friends that have uh, had their MBAs for, for a while, you know, uh, they they talked about how this really wasn't taught about that much. and If it was, like you said, it was more right. than that command and control. Uh, you know, and the 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 Jack Welches and, and things like that were, you know, kind of the uh, the apostles, if you will.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And and now uh, having you know some some friends whose kids are going to I you know, live in Indiana. I've uh, got a a few friends whose kids are going to the Kelly School of Business down there in IU. What's nice and interesting is they are starting to change to a little bit more of, uh, you know, it goes by a few different names, but the, the the human-centric leadership in these programs and and some of these soft skills, the interpersonal skills a little bit, uh, uh, you use a little bit more of the carrot and a little bit less of the stick, right? Right, right, right. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and as a, one of my uh, clients, the CEO, likes to say, um, you know, and business schools do a horrible job of teaching culture. In fact, they, they don't teach it at all. You know, right. then he's the CEO of a major company, and, you know, has had to learn everything about culture on his on his own on the job. So,
0: uh And that's, yeah. a, that's a terrible pl- – I mean – it's a good place to learn because you have a lot of real life examples there, but it's also a terrible place to learn because of the consequences of screwing up those real life examples, right? Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and I think that, you know, for me, I think that's the one thing that, that I have somewhat of a difficulty getting leaders to grasp, right? Is, is when they do really care and pay attention to culture and all that, they, they tend to do a decent job within the four walls of the business, but it's hard to get them to understand how the, the corporate culture there impacts somebody's home life, which in right. turn impacts how well they work for them.
1: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And this is the consequences of, um, of reducing culture, simplifying culture that I, you say in the book, dumbing it down consequences are that you continue to you know people continue to work in very toxic work environments and continue to work in um situations that are um terribly demoralizing uh and kind of existentially demoralizing because you know what the lived experience of the people the folks working in the organization is so uh different than the espoused you know marketed um, culture that's coming out of the CEO's mouth or the marketing department. Right. And so that, that cognitive dissonance, that that jarring experience between one reality and the other is, is can be incredibly demoralizing and incredibly, um, uh, you know, soul, soul destroying for, for many people. Organizations, you know, I'm not saying this is, you know, they're, it's changing, but there's such a disconnect sometimes between the lived experience of employees and, and, uh, you know, the, what, what the leaders espouse. Um, and that's partly, you know, sort of what this book is trying to address is, is let's, get, let's get smarter about culture. Let's get more real about what, how cultures really form, where they come from. And in so doing, let's start to get smarter about how to, uh, how to use that culture, that resource to, you know, to make the world a better place, to make our organizations a better place and make the world a better place in turn. And also, by the way, have uh, change be more sustainable. And as I argue in the book, you know, organizations that are continuing to sort of dumb down culture and treat it as a as a resource, you know, or treat it like a, a piece of real estate or a piece of machinery um, in this you know time of global pandemics and this time of the fourth industrial revolution, this massive disruption that's occurring across industries with the advent of technology of AI, machine learning. Robotics, um, you know, human computer, uh, the merging of the, of the human and the, and the, and the computer chip into, into one organism. I mean, these are huge disruptions that we'll see over the next 25 to 40 years. And if, if you are continuing to be naive about how, what culture is and how it works, you know, you are not doing your organization's a service or your employees. You're going to be left behind.
0: Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, I'm sure, um, you're familiar with the the concept of moral injuries, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. yeah. I, and I think that's, that's the other thing that, that I wish more leaders would understand is, is that concept. And you know, one of the things that creates a moral injury is violating a deeply held belief. Well, if we, if we believe that culture is a collection of beliefs uh, and we're violating the, we're saying that these are our beliefs. and We have people that come in that say that they align with those beliefs and we're violating those beliefs. We're creating those moral injuries in our workforce. And, and, you know, for the, for the folks who aren't, I mean, these are things like on brain scans, a moral injury shows up like pain. That's why mm-hmm. they call it a moral injury. It actually inflicts pain on you when you suffer a moral injury. So it's like walking up to somebody and smack them in the face. How many people are going to be happy, healthy, productive, contributing workers if you're constantly walking up and snap them in the face? Right. 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 Yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, we're coming up on about, as uh, best I can tell here with my timer, we're coming up here on about 45 to 50 minutes. And we've really only got through uh, again, skimming the first couple of chapters of the book. I really do want to take a quick second here and, and remind folks, this is disrupting corporate culture. Uh, please go check this out. If you are leading teams, if you are in a position to influence culture, this book does a great job, uh, as you've hopefully heard already in just the first couple of chapters of diving into some of the myths and some of the the issues with how we view modern culture and and the cognitive sciences uh, that can go in to making modern workplace cultures better. Uh, Dr. White does a great job of laying this out through the book. So please go pick up your copy. Uh, You won't be, uh, you won't be disappointed. Uh, But before we work to close out, I do want to just kind of quickly touch on chapter three. Where does culture come from?
1: Yeah. Thank you. Um, And thank you for that. Uh, yeah, so the so the first couple chapters of the book talk about you know what's wrong and how we got to where we are in business and and um, the myths and all that. Uh, the 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 rest of the book tries to talk about what you know what the modern science is showing about what culture is and where it comes from, and then how does that play out in business and how to how to lever, how to let uh, leaders leverage that. Um, the so the cognitive so the last thirty years have really seen a, a tremendous what i call a cognitive revolution uh in and in specifically in this area of what i call the study of the cultural mind which is really the idea that culture comes from the brain it's it's it comes from the mind and it is a shared phenomena um and and you alluded to it already when you when you talked about beliefs um but the brain you know modern neuroscience shows that the brain is deeply um, impacted and influenced by experience and that's pretty obvious. We all, you know, we all say, what well, we learn from experience." But the the modern neuroscience shows it goes much deeper than that. That actually, the brain itself, the neurological structure and the chem- neurochemical composition of the brain is indelibly shaped by experience, and specifically, what you do and what you have done, and uh, over over decades and over years. Um, and taking that to the level of culture, um, cultures form in groups based on, as I said earlier, the tasks of those groups uh, and to some extent the, and or to some extent the professional, dominant professional orientation of those groups, you know, doctors in HMOs, software engineers and software companies, um, anthropologists in uh, university departments in anthropology, et cetera. The actual task environment, what you do all day shapes how you think um and when i say all day i mean over over years right? right and so um uh so uh cultures form predominantly from those two sources there's a third source which i cite in the book too which is more more uh le- more rare less frequent which is you know what i call a core purpose um an ideological purpose that actually transcends commercial ambitions and that's that's more rare and i'll talk about that in a second but um and, and cultures form this way because these are adaptations, successful adaptations to to the environment. Um, and the more an, a community succeeds in solving the problems inherent in its in its environment, the the methods and tools and ideas and ideals used to 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 create that success form into mental representations, shared mental mental representations in the brain that form cultures. And so this is why. Um, any company that has been extremely successful in solving a major problem in its in its environment in its ecology, you know, Microsoft created the operating system, Google invented search, um, you know, a- Apple with its well-known design values, right? These are these are um, companies who have successfully mastered very very or solved very complex challenges or overcome really difficult um, environmental challenges. You will invariably see the the traces, the, like I call them signatures of those experiences, those collective experiences in the cultures of the organization, and and this is why law firms, you know, are more alike with each other than they are unlike. You know, and this is why um, uh, companies in similar industries are pretty much like each other because they they've solved similar kinds of problems, and so you see similar cultures. Manufacturing companies have very 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 similar cultures to each other, despite the fact that they try to be differentiated from each other. They're very, very similar. The task of making things all day long creates environments, cultural environments where, you know, there's um, low tolerance for risk-taking, a high emphasis on certainty, a high emphasis on thinking about uh, the world in terms of concrete um, made objects versus abstractions, um, strong premium on, on, uh, you know, uh, seeing is believing, you know, those, those kinds of values. So um, there's a direct link between what groups do all day long to succeed and the way they think, and that essentially forms culture. Now, the, the question then, you know, you might want to ask is, so how does a leader deal with that, right? If, if the culture is already given to you by the task environment, by the things that you do all day long, or by your dominant professional groups that are doing those things, or some combination, <clears throat> How, do you, how does a leader work with that, right? And so the, the answer in the book, and, and we get into, in the book, I get into a long um, case study with a manufacturing company um, and uh, that's going through a major digital transformation, is leaders deal with that by um, recognizing that the way they access these sort of shared cultural, or let me put it this way, the, the shared mental representations, the shared logics, the shared assumptions of the group, the way you access those shared assumptions is by going after what people do all day long, which is what I call in the book, going after the practices of the organization. If you want to change culture, you have to change your practices. And the way to understand that idea, is it's just no, it's simple. No, no different than saying, you know, if you want to lose 30 pounds or you want to quit smoking or you want to improve your health, you know um, you need to actually change your habits and your routines. You can't just sort of make a new year's resolution and hope for, hope for the best. It's, you have to actually make physical changes to how you spend your time all day long. And that will start to change brain chemistry over time, which will start to then impact, um, your attitudes, your feelings, you know, how you behave, etc. The same, it's the same with groups and in, with, with culture and in groups, you start to change the habits and routines of the organization. You will over time start to change the way that organization behaves. And that's how you change culture.
0: Mm. Well, that is, a, that is a great way to put it, and, and I hope that resonated uh, with the listeners. Um, so as we look to wrap up, uh, I know we only got, you know, kind of just skim Chapter 3 there. There's a couple chapters left. Uh, is there anything that we didn't get a chance to touch on that you really want to leave the listeners with?
1: well just just to to build on that point about um changing culture through practices right i mean practices here you know some of your listeners might say, well yeah of course that's, that's what organizations do you know they change their hiring practices or they change the way they pay people or they change their um, you know they change their uh the benefit scheme or the working hours right and and those are and, and too many organizations approach culture change as as a problem for the h r department right and that's that's a very as I argue in the book, it's a, it's a very reductive and simplistic and naive way of thinking about it because you're not really going after the way you run your business. The actual true path to culture change through, through practices is going after the, the practices at the center of your business. Um, they do involve people, but they involve lots of other things, too. They can involve, you know, for example, the way you set budgets, the way you, the way you um, plan your strategy. Uh, the way that you manage the business, you know how many hours a week do you spend in management meetings, um, the way that you approach customers, the way you build products all of those are are areas of practice that you need to start looking very closely at and decide where do these um, logics and assumptions in your business where do they how do they show up as patterns in these practices and if you want to change your culture you have to start changing the patterns inherent in these practices by changing the practices themselves and that's how you start to sort of move the ship in the in in, in the particular desired direction and it hasn't and if you start thinking about culture in those terms you, you see that you're pretty far away now from the posters on the wall in the conference room or that or the great memo that the CEO wrote or the value statement right or the you know the the getting the leader to uh, sort of called walk the talk i mean you're pretty far away from that kind of stuff when you start thinking about, oh, I got to change my budgeting practices, or I got to change the way I allocate resources, or I got to change the way um, <clears throat> the basis by which I I think about who's a rock star here and who's not. Right? That, those are the that's the stuff of culture, and that's the stuff of lived culture in organizations. It's not the posters.
0: So oh, I love it. That's a great, great uh, spot to to end on. <laughs> If, uh, if folks are, who are listening would like to get in touch with you, uh, what, are, what are some of the best ways for them to do that?
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, well, you can find me at uh, ontosglobal.com. O-N-T-O-S, That's uh, uh, our consulting practice uh, in Berkeley, California. Uh, my partner, Lisa Koss and I founded that uh, consulting practice. We do culture and leadership work uh, around the world um, and that's one way to do it. David white at Ontos global. is my email. Okay. So those are good ways. Okay. And I will, I will have
0: links to those in the show notes. So if uh, people are interested, they'll be able to just click right on it and, and take it straight to, uh, Ontos global and, uh, to, to your email address. So, uh, you know, Dr. White, again, thank you very much for, for carving out the time and being with us. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I know we had some tech issues at the beginning and thank you for being gracious and, and working with those so we could get this interview out for the listeners because I think it's going to be extremely valuable. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much Earl, for having me. Appreciate it. Yep. And uh, listeners, again, uh, I, I strongly urge you to go uh, pick up a copy of the book. I'll give you the the full title uh, one more time. That is uh, Disrupting Corporate Culture, How Cognitive Science Alters Accepted Beliefs About Culture and Culture Change and Its Impact on Leaders and Change Agents. Uh, it is a great book, especially if you're into the neuroscience and the cognitive science behind culture and leadership. This is, uh, I would almost consider it a must-have on your shelf. Um, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, we'll have the links up for you to be able to get a hold of David. If you have any for me, burden.command at gmail.com. Please uh, be sure that you're going and rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so our guests can get exposure and the, and the show can grow on the various platforms. I want to thank you for spending your time with us this uh, whenever you're listening to it. I hope it's been an educational and uh, informational packed last hour or so. And with that, I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Trick ass.